If you've been in the church for any amount of time, you know it's sort of an inside joke that Princess Bride has been sort of adopted as the the church-wide movie. And as I'm approaching a text on divorce and, and, uh, and marriage and remarriage, I was trying everything within me not to launch into a Princess Bride introduction. And then I got this text from David Andrews on Friday that started marriage. That dream within a dream. Well, this morning we are talking about marriage as well as that unfortunate reality of divorce. If we're honest this morning, for many, marriage isn't a dream within a dream or hasn't been. I understand that this is a difficult topic for many. You know, statistics show that four in ten first-time people that are married for the first time, that marriage will end in divorce. So this is a, a topic that has affected everybody in the room in one way or another. My hope for us this morning is that, that this truth would, would undergird everything we say this morning, that God is good and that His commands are often hard, but they're only kind. He is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God imparts wisdom to those who will receive it. He warns those who are on the verge of transgressing it. He comforts those who mourn their sin. And He judges those who walk in rebellion, unrepentant rebellion. He's a good and a kind God. So with that in mind, we'll, we'll launch into the instruction that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 16, verse 18, and it's where we find the, the ideal that God gives, or what I've called the rule there, if you're keeping notes, point number one, the rule. We read that in Luke chapter 16, verse 18. As you know, we've been walking verse by verse through the gospel of Luke. Typically, we'll try to take a story at a time, or at least a paragraph, um, but this is This is a topic that we felt like maybe we need to slow down and understand what Jesus is saying. So so we we looked at Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18 last week. And you can can go on the website and listen to that whole sermon if you want a a full summary. But we, we could probably summarize what we said this way. That we actually understand the law and the prophets. Or we understand the Old Testament in its fullest sense, when we realize that it was pointing forward to the work of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is, is arguing is that His presence, his, his offer of the kingdom, ultimately His instituting the new Christ through, or the new covenant through His ministry does not cancel the law, but it fulfills the law. So, so Jesus can say on one hand that the law and the prophets lasted up until the, the ministry of John but also that not one dot of the law will pass away. Why? Because Jesus has fulfilled the law. It's still useful for us as believers, even though we're not under the stipulations that are given under the Old Covenant specifically. And so we argue that that helps us explain the presence of verse 18 in this paragraph. Because if you're just reading it, it feels a little bit out of, uh, a little bit disjointed. In fact, the ESV puts its own heading. This, this verse is like its own paragraph. But we said, well, there's a reason Jesus 
goes here. The, the, the permanence of marriage is meant to be a, a, a picture of the unfailing nature of the law. Like marriage is meant to be permanent, the law, again, though its stipulations are not binding on new covenant believers, we're under a new and a better covenant. Nevertheless, it endures in the sense that it, it points us more fully to Jesus Christ. So in other words, Jesus is demonstrating what he has just said about the law not becoming void. It, it, it lasts. We shouldn't, again, rip the Old Testament out of our Bibles and throw it away. He didn't completely just annul the, the significance of the Old Testament like someone might annul a, a, a marriage through divorce. Jesus says that would be akin to adultery. Instead, Jesus fulfills the law, still serving the purpose. It's a shadow, Paul says. Christ is the substance, but the shadow helps us understand Christ. So that's one reason verse 18 is, is where it is. And we said this as well. The placement of verse 18 also emphasizes that the fulfillment of the law through Jesus Christ does not undermine the moral imperatives of God. You know, perhaps Jesus was uh, anticipating pushback from the Pharisees that if, if, if this new era is instituted, if you come into the kingdom by, by grace, maybe it's just there's no more moral standards. So Jesus, again, goes to this saying in order to demonstrate, no, the, the moral imperatives of God are not undermined or removed. In fact, in places in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus seems to intensify them. And so that, we argued, is the primary point of Luke ch chapter 16, verse 18. That's why it's there. That's what Jesus is doing with it. But again, we should, we should wrestle with the words that Jesus has concerning divorce and remarriage. So what's happening in Luke 16, 18? What do these words mean? Even though they're an illustration, what, what is Jesus saying? I think what Jesus is doing is he lays out the standard. To make a vow, to enter into the covenant of marriage is not to be, not to be taken lightly. And, and so here, here's the rule. To break that vow and marry another is to be guilty of adultery. And on the flip side, for someone to take that person who has been uh, divorced and marry them, they too are guilty of adultery. Jesus had just warned the Pharisees that God sees into the heart. We'll see more clearly in a moment. But many in Israel assumed that, that they could sort of divorce, and, and, and typically it was the men that were instituting or instigating this, that they could divorce their wives for any reason including, I just want to marry someone else. And this is what God is blasting the Israelites for in Malachi chapter 2. Remember, we walked through the book of Malachi, if you've been with us for more than a few years. I don't know how long. I've only been here three years, so who cares? Um, they were divorcing their wives in order to just go take a, a wife from another uh, surrounding country that worshiped a different God, and God says, you know, you're, you're defaming God's name by divorcing your wife in order to take another wife. And so I think what Jesus, he, he has just warned the Pharisees that, that God sees their hearts. God sees their heart. They wanted to say, well, you know what? I divorced, 
So now I can go get the woman that I, that I really want. I, I'm free to remarry because I actually divorced her. And God says, he, he sees your heart. He sees your adulterous heart, that you can't just institute divorce so you can go get the woman that you really want. And again, typically in this culture, it was the men that were instigating this. Yeah, I, I, you know, but these rules are going to go both ways, right? I may say man divorce wife, wife divorce man. I may say spouse. Okay, just understand they go both ways. So God can see into their adulterous hearts, and he's condemning this, this attitude and this action because marriage is meant to be a permanent union. So marriage, like the Old Testament teaching from the, laws, from the law and the prophets, is meant to be a lasting reality. Divorce is not meant to be treated with, with a sort of cavalier attitude. Now, in our culture, it may not seem like that big a deal. And in fact, we'll see that in Israel, it wasn't that much different. But in our culture, it may not seem like a big deal to divorce in order to find the one that you truly love. Or, or maybe because I've actually found the one. Or, or I should divorce because God wants me to be happy, and I can be happy with this other person. I've actually known, known people who, who seek a divorce because they, they need to find themselves. They need to figure out who they really are, and they can't do it with a, their current spouse. But the reality is, if you're married this morning, God's purposes for you will never contradict and what that means is this, that his, his purposes for you are not truly actually found out there. If I can just divorce here, then I can go find out what God really has for me. You know, his purposes for you are wrapped up in the covenant in which you currently exist. So the, the, the application from Luke 16 18 is, is this, don't, don't end the covenant. Be faithful. For those of you who are married, stay faithful. Do not forsake the covenant that you have made. Back in Malachi, remember what God says, when, when you stood at that altar and you made these vows and these promises to one another that your friends and your family weren't the only ones there that morning or that evening or whatever it was, God says, I am a witness to this covenant. Also, to those of you who hope to be married someday, I would encourage you to, to think big thoughts about God's view of marriage. Marriage is a, a, a wonderful blessing, but it's a weighty responsibility. When you're old enough to date, some of you are kind of you're pushing those boundaries. I'm not going to give you an age. Talk to your parents. But when you're old enough to date and you're starting to think about marriage and what that would be like, date someone who you, you could see yourself entrusting yourself to for the rest of your life. I was teaching at the Bible College in Springfield a few weeks ago, and this, this girl asked this question, and I, I, I may be wrong on this, but I, I assumed she was actually asking about herself. And she said, what would you say to somebody, how would you counsel somebody if they're not dating an unbeliever per se, but they're just really immature. 
And so I, I sort of gave my answer, but then I went into like dad mode. You know, I'm like, girls, you better not mess around with this. <laughs> I encourage you girls and you young men to be considering someone that you might entrust yourself with. There's a lot on the line. There's a lot at stake. That's the ideal. That's, that's the rule. But maybe we should look at the text that Neil read. We're trying to get a fully orbed understanding here of what Jesus teaches about this. So we can look number two, flip over to Matthew 19. What I'm calling, I'm sort of giving away my position here, the exceptions to the rule. Neil read it, so we won't read the entire text. Um, But I I do want to try to summarize it. We don't have time to do a full sermon on Matthew 19 or 1 Corinthians 7, but we'll summarize the text, and then we'll try to figure out what is Jesus teaching here. So there was a lot of debate in Israel about what constituted grounds for divorce. Much of that debate centered on what Moses meant in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and then there's some instruction there that I think is actually intended to sort of protect protect the woman, even though there was at least some indecency there. But the debate really surrounded and centered on this idea of what did Moses mean that that, that a husband would find some indecency in his wife and therefore he would give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. That's, That's what the debate centered on. What is this indecency in Deuteronomy chapter 24? Some were following this man named Shammai, and they said that some... Some indecency in Deuteronomy 24, it it must refer to some gross sin. But that sin doesn't necessarily have to reach the level of adultery, but it has to be some significant gross indecency. But there was a whole bunch of Israelites who were following another man who taught in another sort sort of uh, path. He, He defined some indecency so broadly that essentially you could divorce for any reason. There are historical examples of men who are divorcing their wives because she didn't prepare a meal correctly. There are examples, even we went to Malachi, but examples of men who simply found another woman, there's an indecency in her because she's not her. And in verse 3, the Pharisees, hoping to sort of, again, I'm in, in Matthew 19, they, they, they sort of hope to bring Jesus into this conversation, into this debate. You might think, man, are you sure there was like no-fault divorce in, in Israel? Well, look what the Pharisees ask in verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's what they want to ask Jesus. For any cause, if she overcooks a meal, can I divorce her? If I find another woman, can I divorce her? And what Jesus does is he responds with the rule, the rule we just saw in Luke chapter 16, verse 18, and saying, 
If you look there in, in verses 4 through 6, divorce is contrary to God's original design. Marriage is meant to be, from the beginning, a permanent union between one man and one woman for one lifetime. And Jesus says this is grounded in God's creation order. He quotes Genesis 2, 24, that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so Jesus says divorce is, is contrary to God's good original design. And that he, he goes so far to say it's, it's unnatural to try to divide what, what Jesus has brought together. But that brings the Pharisees back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Then why did Moses write Deuteronomy 24, verse 1? Look there in verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Verse 8, he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So they ask, why did Moses command this? But notice Jesus' answer. He, he, he doesn't say, well, God commanded this because. He says, Moses didn't really command it, did he? He allowed it, or he permitted it. If you were to go back to, and we were to reread Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, Moses didn't say, you shall give a certificate of divorce. It's in a series of these, these conditional senses, if this happens, if this happens, if this ha happens. So what Moses is saying, if he does give her a certificate of divorce. In other words, Moses is sort of regulating this practice. Moses permitted divorce but did not command it. And this allowance, Jesus is saying, was not part of the original creation design, but it's the result of the corruption of God's original design through sin. It's because of your hardness of heart. I think that you're there. He's talking to the Pharisees, but he's referencing Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. It seems to make the most sense. It's you, it's man, it's, it's your hardness of heart, it's man's hardness of heart, it's through sin that Divorce becomes a reality. What made divorce a reality? It was sin. And in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and in Luke 19, sometimes a reality that is necessary. So Jesus gives his response in verse 9, really his answer to the question in verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So he reiterates the rule, right? Luke 16, 18. Reiterates the rule, but gives a notable exception there. Except for the case of sexual immorality. Apparently, and I'm going to sort of give the other side of the argument as clearly and and persuasively as I can, but apparently to divorce in the case of sexual sin is not to be found guilty of adultery. It's the exception. 
The disciples respond in verse 10 with astonishment. Man, then it must be better not to marry. And then Jesus goes on in the rest of the paragraph that Neil read to say, I, I believe he's saying, you know, to, to some, they should remain single. And God gives grace for some to remain single. So the real question, and the reason we're taking a week on this, is try to figure out how does Luke 16, 18 fit with Matthew 19? How do, we, how do we fit everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery? Everyone who does this commits adultery. How do we fit that with Matthew 18, 9? And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. You see, this is an important question. And I know that, I know that there's lots of people in this room who have thought hard about this and have come to conclusions about this. But it's an, an, an important question, and one in which, to, to be honest, I approach with a sense of fear and trembling because it is a serious, serious error to permit what God forbids. However, it is equally egregious to forbid that which God allows. To exercise the threat of church discipline for, on somebody for taking an exception that Jesus allows. So we've got to understand, is this a real exception? And this is, this is serious. We can't just cop out and say, well, we should probably just take the harder stance to protect ourselves. Well, no, we can't. Because we're either allowing something that God forbids or we are forbidding something that God has made an exception for. In fact, my hope is that we would avoid two extremes, not two, two extreme positions, but two extreme attitudes, you might say. One is sort of the tendency to say, you know what, the, the most difficult position must be the right position. That's, that's one extreme I want to avoid, that the harshest interpretation must be the correct interpretation. It, it may be correct. But I don't want us just to lean one way because that's sort of our view of God is that he's, he's a hard God and the hardest view, way must be the right way. We run the danger of being like Job's friends who, who said, no, you're in sin. Yet God's verdict of Job, at least in the first two chapters, is that he's a righteous man. The hard verdict in Job was not the right verdict. But I also want us to avoid another attitudinal ex extreme and saying, you know what, ah, man, it's just, there's so much divorce in the culture. Everybody's been influenced and touched by it. Like, there's no way Jesus is saying the hard thing, right? So we, I want us to avoid those two attitudes and think hard about the text so we can think about these options together. You know, for the sake of time, I'm going to look at the, the top two sort of views that people take. One is, is actually the minority position. It's that Luke 16, 18 should drive the way we understand Matthew 19. In other words, um, no divorce ever, no remarriage ever. Well, how do they get there? Because if you just take Matthew 19 from face value, you, you might think that's hard to get there. Well, let's think about it. Much of, and I, I mean, I hate to get like dragged in the weeds, but we're going there. 
much of the disagreement centers on the word that's translated, in the ESV it's translated sexual immorality there in Matthew 19.9, except in the case of, of sexual immorality. The Greek word there is porneia, and it is appropriately translated in the ESV as sexual immorality. It's a general term that it captures all kinds of sexual sins. It, it, it relates to any sinful sexual activity outside of uh, you know, the, the marriage covenant between one man and one woman for one lifetime. So guys that I love and respect, like, like John Piper take this position, he would say that if Jesus is referring to marriage, he would not have said sexual immorality there. Instead, he would have chosen a different word that means adultery specifically, the Greek word moikeia. So some would argue this, that since Jesus uses porneia there, sexual immorality, and he doesn't use adultery, then Jesus must be referring to something besides adultery within the context of, of a covenant, one man and one woman. So then they would go one more step, and they would say, if you look over at John chapter 8, verse 41, you don't have to turn there, but the Pharisees say, we weren't born of sexual immorality. We have one Father who is God. And basically what they're saying is, we weren't born out of, out of wedlock, so to speak. And so then they come, they come back to Matthew and say, therefore, porneia, sexual immorality, must be a reference not to adultery, not to, not, not to a marriage, but to that time that the New Testament calls betrothal, where a man and a woman were betrothed to be married. In other words, Jesus isn't talking about marriage at all when he gives the exception to the rule. He is talking about betrothal. Now, the closest thing we have to betrothal would be something like being engaged to be married, although engagements probably break a lot quicker than those who are betrothed to be married would break off an engagement. Think about Joseph and Mary. Right? Joseph finds out that Mary was pregnant. He it hasn't entered into his mind that maybe the Holy Spirit came upon her and she is bearing the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. What's Joseph going to think? She's, she's cheated on me. And Joseph is a pious man, and he, he puts her away because in his mind she's committed sexual immorality, you know, notwithstanding the fact that she hadn't, and he finds out later. So maybe Jesus is talking about this betrothal period. So Jesus is saying, if you are married, then all divorce is sinful and all remarriage is sinful. But if you're betrothed and there's sexual immorality, then you can let her go. Send her out. Send him out. All right, I told you, don't try to read too much into so with the exception clause off the table, then they would argue it makes more sense in verse 10 that the Pharisees or the, the disciples would say, man, it's better not to marry at all because there's no exception whatsoever. The statement makes a lot of sense if Jesus is making a really hard statement. It also seems to make a lot of sense of the, of the logic and 
Jesus' words in Luke 16, 18, that even if you divorce and you get remarried, that's adultery. Lastly, and, and to their credit, they would argue from verses, I think, 10 to 12, that you know, God gives special grace to walk in obedience here. That's the point of Jesus' reply about the eunuchs being eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. It's better to remain in singleness while being obedient to God than to enjoy remarriage while being disobedient to God. So that's, that's one way to understand the text. You've seen my notes. You know where I'm going to land. But as hard as some of these type, the, the, these things are to discern, and again, these are smart, godly people who disagree, it seems that there are lots of good reasons to take the words of Christ at face value here and understand that His words are a real exception for divorce, though a small exception. The question is, is it contradictory for Jesus to state the rule in Luke 16, 18 and give an exception in Matthew 19:9? Is that contradictory? No. You know, besides the fact that likely given what they were debating in the Jewish culture, you know, it's likely that they would understand that there are exceptions that exist for things like adultery and the breaking of the covenants. But we should also say that the rule doesn't wipe out the exception to the rule. If I say to you, I love tacos, that's the rule. And I come to your house for dinner and you hand me a tortilla with pineapple wrapped in it. I'm going to say, accept those tacos. The rule stands. But there's a real exception to the rule that also stands. I think that's what Jesus is, is driving at in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. It's important for us to consider the context of Jesus' word. We said that that first view rests entirely on Jesus' words being about betrothal and not marriage. But there's nothing in the context that would suggest that Jesus has betrothal in mind. Jesus is asked about marriage, and He answers about marriage. They ask Him about Deuteronomy 24.1, which is about marriage. He answers about Deuteronomy 24.1, which is about marriage. He goes to Genesis chapter 1, which is about marriage. He goes to Genesis chapter 2, which is about marriage. And He answers, as far as, as, far as I understand this text, about marriage. It's also unclear, and take, honestly, take this one with a grain of salt, because uh, I didn't really see anyone else arguing this, but I saw it in 1 Corinthians 7. So, again, take this with a grain of salt. But in 1 Corinthians 7, we'll get there in a minute more fully, so if you want to flip there, you can, but you don't have to. Paul says this, if you're betrothed to be married, he's essentially arguing that it's a good thing, marriage is good, but it's also good, and in some ways, beneficial to remain single, if you can, for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so Paul says, if you're betrothed to be married and you can't control yourself, if you, if you, if you desire marriage and you want to get married, guess what? Get married. 
But then he says something interesting there in verse 37. He says, but if, if not, if you're betrothed to be married, but you can have self-control, you can walk in singleness for the sake of the kingdom, I'm paraphrasing, go for it. There's no indication in 1 Corinthians 7 that there needs to be this exception that if she commits sexual immorality, then you can be, break the betrothal, then you can be single for the rest of your life. Paul just seems to assume that if you want to serve God in your singleness, even if you're betrothed to be married, go for it. Also, it is unconvincing that Jesus had to use the specific word for adultery rather than the general word for sexual immorality. Sexual immorality would include adultery and include other gross sexual sins. All adultery is sexual immorality, so Jesus uses a broad term that would capture an adulterous affair, but also other kinds of sinful acts that would break the marriage covenant. So then we're, we're left wrestling, well, what about the disciples' question? Or not question, but statement. What about their statement where they say, you know, it would be better to never marry. If this is true, Jesus, it would be better to never marry. Well, remember the historical context. And remember the question in verse 3 was, should a, a man divorce his wife for any cause? And what Jesus answers is, no, one cause, one cause. And so it makes sense that the disciples would respond, man, we've been taught and discipled that I could divorce her for overcooking the meal. Now you're telling me this is the only exception. So it's into this context that Jesus speaks and answers the question in verse 3. The disciples seemingly were challenged as well with the exception, but the limited exception that Jesus gives. So here's wrapping up. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. The act of sexual unfaithfulness in marriage so betrays the one flesh union between a man and a woman that it breaks the covenant. A biblical divorce, or we might say a, a divorce with biblical grounds, is not the breaking of the covenant, but the recognition that the covenant has been broken by the offending party. Say that again. A divorce on biblical grounds is not the breaking of the covenant, but the recognition that the covenant has been broken. It's to nullify what was broken by the one who has committed the adulterous act. Listen to what God says in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. He's talking about Judah. Judah saw that for all the adulteries of the faithless one Israel, I, this is God speaking, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Did God break the covenant? Israel had broken the covenant. And God uses this metaphor of a divorce of decree to indicate that they're going to be turned over to the, the curses of breaking the covenant. It seems like then that's, that's the principle driving the exception here. That sexual unfaithfulness breaks the covenant. In fact, Paul makes a, a similar argument over in 1 Corinthians 7. And you may want to you may want to turn there. I can't do as much work in 1 Corinthians 7. But verse 15 he says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. 
In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So Paul seems to give another exception in 1 Corinthians 7.15. The exception here is, is abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. That is, he or she deserts the marriage, deserts the covenant. And Paul says, if that's the case, you're no longer bound. I would argue, and I don't have time to develop all of this, that, that this leaving, this, you know, when you talk about leaving, it's, it's less geographical. It's about putting away the marriage. Send her away is the way it would talk about in, in Deuteronomy. So it, it's less geographical, but is it about, about the abandonment of his or her obligations and commitment to the marriage, both of those things together. I don't want to say, well, he yelled at me, so he abandoned his covenant. No, we're not, we're not going there. Paul seems to be pulling from, from Exodus chapter 21, verses 10 through 11, that say, if he takes another wife to himself, again, God seems to be wanting to protect the innocent party here. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing. Now, this is, this is like a servant who, who, who gets married, so it's going out. It's, it's going out for, for free, but also it would be a divorce. And what's interesting, if you read the entirety of, of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is dealing with these realities. He's talking about how, how a husband will be distracted by seeking how we may please, or we might say take care of his spouse, providing for his spouse. He deals with this idea of marital rights in 1 Corinthians 7. So it seems that he's, he's pulling from this idea in Exodus 21 where a man would, would, would take another wife and he would begin to neglect this wife and, and she, could be, she could actually divorce because he, wasn't, he, he had abandoned the marriage. So it seems that there are ways in which a spouse can break the covenant while technically remaining inside the house. So situations like physical abuse, extreme neglect, these things could so break the covenant that it becomes grounds for divorce. Desertion, abandonment. Not, not living with such a one, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. It, it's as significant as sexual unfaithfulness. They both break the covenant and are therefore grounds for divorce. So the principle then that we see in the New Testament is that divorce is, is actually only permitted when someone has broken the covenant through abandonment, which again I would include things like physical abuse in there, and adultery or sexual unfaithfulness. So it's been, I, I believe, important for us to think hard about this and, and to sort of get a, a breadth of teaching on divorce and remarriage, but I really don't want us to get dragged away from Jesus' ideal, from Jesus' main point that marriage was designed to be one man and one woman covenanting together for one lifetime. The reality is that divorce is so common that, that the functional view of, of many is divorce whenever you want, remarry whenever you want. And Jesus actually says some, some hard truths for us. 
things we ought to consider. I would encourage you, if you are, if you look back on your life and you say, man, I should not have, I don't think I had grounds. And you are remarried. I think if you read 1 Corinthians 7, Paul would say, remain as you are. Don't, not that any of you are really considering this, but don't blow up one marriage to try to fix what was broken in the past. To those who are divorced, some questions to consider. Did I initiate the divorce or what? Or did my spouse divorce me? If I divorced, did I have biblical grounds for divorce? So let's end then with, with that third point. The purpose for the rule and the exceptions to the rule. Why would, why would Jesus take such a hard stance? One in which the disciples would say, man... It might be better to remain single. single. Well, we know that the purpose of marriage, marriage exists for the glory of God. Specifically, it exists because God had in mind. I think marriage exists because of the gospel, not the other way around. It's not like God said, you know, I don't know how many thousands of years after he created man. You know what? This marriage thing I created back in Genesis, that's a pretty good illustration of the gospel. I think I'll use that. That's what we do when we preach. God had in mind from the beginning, marriage exists because the gospel exists. Marriage exists for the sake of the gospel. Marriage exists to make much of the gospel. It exists because God had in His mind and His will and in His decree that His Son would sacrifice Himself for His people. Marriage then becomes an opportunity for us as as God's people to testify to the glory of the gospel. Then why the exceptions? Well, there are times when testifying to the glory of Christ and the church is not attained by pushing a wife back to a man that's just going to continue to waylay her. Right, Appealing to the purpose of marriage when a man is abusing his wife consistently and unrepentantly, it doesn't seem to hold water. The same would be true for unfaithfulness. Don't you know that this is a picture of Christ in the church? So go get yourself beat up again. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Instead, a divorce with actual grounds. And again, this is like Jesus would say it's permissible. It's not commanded. There are wonderful testimonies even even in our church of reconciliation and grace and mercy and kindness. You don't have to institute this. But a divorce with grounds announces this is not what marriage was intended to be. This is not the way Christ treats His bride. And in those situations, the spouse is permitted. They may do this by God's grace. And help, they may seek to reconcile and forgive, separate for a season so she's safe, give her husband time to repent. But a person should not be church disciplined for pursuing an exception that Jesus offers. That's the reason for the exception. What's the reason reason for the hard rule? Again, it's... because it's designed to testify to Christ and His church. 
Though marriage is a wonderful gift from God that's meant to be enjoyed, marriage is not primarily about us. It is primarily to be a demonstration of the willing self-sacrifice of Christ and the glad submission of Christ's people to their new Lord, Jesus Christ. We know that Christ demonstrated His love for His people by sacrificing for their eternal good. He died on the cross to pay the price for every sin and reconcile them with a holy God. And you this morning, if God gave you eyes to see the glory of the gospel, and you gladly threw yourself at the mercy of Christ, repenting of sin, then you stand holy and righteous before Him. You've been credited with the very righteousness of Christ. It's right to consider the the weight and the gravity of sin. And it's right to consider the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God. And maybe we should stop there with our eyes set on God's eternal purpose for marriage. To be an image of Christ and His church. We long for that day when we are with Christ. For some, this passage brings up regrets and sends up maybe sharp pains through us as we consider how seriously Jesus takes marriage and potentially how unseriously we treated it in the past. Remember the truth that's going to undergird all of this, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He gives grace to the humble and He empowers His people to walk and to follow even the hardest commands. Let's pray together. Lord God, may we keep our eyes on you and on the cross of your Son, Jesus Christ, even as we prepare to sing to you and observe communion here in a few moments. Lord, may we humbly receive your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.